kids brought, and so that'll go to support uh, their work as well. All right. Would you take your Bibles and would you turn to Matthew chapter 20? So we're going to look at a passage and talk about what it means to be a servant of Christ. Matthew chapter 20. I'd like to begin at verse 17. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day he will be raised to life. And then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. And she said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes too. And that in areas of our life where maybe we have been spiritually blind, that you would open our eyes to see. To see Jesus and all of his fullness, his glory, his power and majesty. To love him and like those two blind men, to follow him as our Savior and Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A famous conductor was once asked, which instrument in the orchestra is the toughest to play? He thought about that a while and then he replied, second fiddle. He said, I can get plenty of people who want to play first violin, but to get someone to play second violin with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. You know, I've thought about that illustration many times through the years. That finding someone to play second fiddle, if you will, isn't just a problem uh, in the orchestra. It can come up in other areas too. Uh, Recently, I've been watching a little bit of the NBA basketball championship that's going on right now between uh, Miami Heat and the Oklahoma City Thunder. 
And I thought it was interesting, one comment I heard during one of the games was talking about the Miami Heat. Uh, they kind of put together this all-star team with LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and you know the other guys that are on the team, and they just look like they should be unbeatable in one sense. And last year they made it to the NBA championship game and they lost. I mean, they were just devastated by that. I mean, they thought they were going to win. How could they do that? And it was interesting that their guard, Dwayne Wade, made a comment this year. He said that this is LeBron James's team. And I'm willing to be number two or number three when it comes to options on the team. You can't have two number ones and be successful. It was interesting. We'll see what happens this year. But he was choosing voluntarily to be a number two or a number three option when on probably a whole lot of other teams in the league he'd be number one. And he was willing to take that role for the good of the team. It is also important in the church People who are willing to serve in any role, in any capacity, are a great blessing in the church. People are willing to use their gifts and say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? That's a quality that God wants to produce in us. Being a servant is a quality that God wants to develop in all of us. And I think it's interesting how often it came up in Jesus' ministry. I can think of three times when Jesus talked about this importance of being a servant, if you will, or of learning to put others first and to use your gifts in that way. In Matthew chapter 18, the disciples were arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what did Jesus do on that occasion? We looked at that a couple weeks ago. He took a child, called for the child to stand among them, and he said, unless you become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's one example. And then in the passage we're going to look at today, you know, Jesus told them about his death, and they're on the way, and they're, they're uh, coming with this request, you know, who's going to be first and second in the kingdom? And they're still thinking about status and rank and position and all kinds of stuff, you know. And what does Jesus do on this occasion? We're going to see he calls for a servant as an example. And he says that you must be a servant if you want to be great in God's kingdom. And then it's going to come up one more time. I mean, you'd think that they would have got it, but even at the Last Supper, Luke tells us that there at that meal, they were arguing among themselves about who was going to be the greatest, you know. And here they are having a Last Supper. They're there in the upper room, and there's nobody there that's going to take the role of the servant to wash their feet. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus takes up the basin and the towel. And he says that I am among you as one who serves. And what I have done for you, you should do for one another. I think the fact that it is repeated, anytime you have repetition in Scripture like that, it means that this is something important. Pay attention. And I think it also shows how difficult it is for us to do it, to learn to be a servant. And if we are going to be servants of Christ, then we need to understand what Jesus taught in this passage. Number one, Jesus challenges our assumptions about greatness and success. We tend to look at greatness and success the way the world does in terms of, you know, positions or status or accomplishments or money or power or influence, all those kind of things. And Jesus doesn't look at greatness in that way. Let's begin in verse 17. As they were going to Jerusalem, 
Jesus took the disciples aside, and now for the third time, he tells them exactly what is going to happen to him. He tells them that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the chief, to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, there's a couple things that Jesus says here. Even though it's the third time that he told them what's going to happen, for the first time, he tells them how he's going to die. He's going to be crucified. And he tells them by whom? That he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles or would it be the Romans who would rule and they will be the ones who would put him to death. But he would rise again on the third day. I mean, it's stunning how specific his prediction is. It's an evidence of his deity again. He knows exactly everything that's going to happen to him. Yet he goes to Jerusalem. He doesn't evade it. He doesn't try to run from this. He knows the reason that he has come. And that's really also what makes this request so surprising. It is shortly after Jesus makes this statement that the mother of James and John comes to Jesus with her bold request. You know, what is it that you want me to do for you? Well, I want you to have my sons, James and John, sit at your right and at your left the preeminent positions next to Jesus. Now that's a pretty bold request, isn't it? Well, based on the Scripture, when you look at the accounts of who was present, the women that were present when Jesus was crucified, and who was present at the resurrection and witnessed that, we believe that this woman, the mother of James and John, that her name was Salome, and that she was Mary's sister. We can't say that 100% certain, but when you take a look at the list and you compare that, and so she would have been an aunt to Jesus. And James and John would have been cousins. And perhaps she's thinking about Jesus' statement when he said that, uh, you know, that to the disciples that you will sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Maybe she's thinking about that, you know, and she's going, well... You know, Jesus, I mean, she's coming as an aunt and asking this favor and maybe you'll grant to your cousins to be, you know, kind of first and second in your kingdom. I also think about the nickname for James and John. Remember what they were called? The Sons of Thunder. And maybe they got some of their assertiveness from their mother who came and made this request. And so here Jesus replies to her. And Jesus' rebuke is gentle. He doesn't reprimand her for asking. I mean, after all, 1 Timothy 3.1, in the scripture there, it says that if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer or an elder, it's a noble work that he desires to do. It's a good thing. It's not wrong to aspire to leadership in the church, but we need to check our motives. And we need to make sure we understand what we are asking. And he questions their understanding. And so he asks them the question, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? And that cup refers to his suffering, his suffering and death that is going to come. And they reply, we can. And they don't fully understand, it seems, what that may mean. We can Maybe they're thinking in their mind, you know, how bad can it get? We have seen Jesus do miracles. 
We've seen Him calm the storm and raise the dead. You know, we're there with Him. It is like Peter's declaration when Peter says, even if all the others forsake you, I will never forsake you. You know, have you ever thought about how that must have sounded to the other disciples? You know, if they were sitting around the table, you know, and they're looking at each other, and Peter goes, I'm not sure about these other guys' commitment, but me, you know, I'm with you all the way. Would that have sounded insulting? Divisive? You know, here they are. They're still kind of positioning and and working and, and, you know, trying to get into this first place. They still don't really understand what is going to happen to Jesus. And Jesus replies, you will drink from that cup. It is prophetic. James would be beheaded by Herod. That is recorded in Acts 12.2. He would be the first apostle to die as a martyr. And John would be exiled on the island of Patmos, and we read about that in the book of Revelation. But Jesus says, To sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. The Father has prepared those places, and He knows who will sit there. And Jesus, as the Son of God, never did anything independent from His Father. And so He would leave that in the Father's hands. Donald Carson wrote about this passage. He said that it is often ignorance that seeks leadership, power, and glory. To ask to reign with Jesus is to ask to suffer with Him. The disciples would, but they did not fully understand what that meant. Jesus challenges our understanding of greatness and success. Being a leader in God's kingdom doesn't mean that others are going to wait on you and serve you and you're going to exercise power and authority like the leaders of this world. No, it means being a servant just like Jesus. Greatness in the kingdom comes through serving. And we see that in verses 24 to 27. As we continue on in this account, it says in verse 24 that when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. You know, they're a little bit upset. Maybe they're upset because they didn't think about it first to make the request, or maybe they're just upset, more likely, because James and John are trying to get ahead of them. And sensing the tension, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach about greatness in the kingdom. And he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, And their high officials exercise authority over them. They are living under the authority of Rome. They know what it's like to be under the boot of a foreign nation. It's oppressive. It can be demeaning. You can't do the things that you want to do as a free and independent people. You are under the authority of someone else. And they know how that power was often abused in terms of money, taxation, uh, you know, putting people into service or work that they didn't want to do. And Jesus says, not so with you. The world values power, authority, money, status but not so with you. World rulers do not provide an example of the kind of leadership God desires in His kingdom. If you are looking at them as the model, you are mistaken. Instead, Jesus says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first 
must be your slave. And those two words that he used, the word servant is the word diakonos or deacon. Uh, It was a servant who worked for hire to maintain his master's household or property. A slave was someone who was pressed into service. Uh, They didn't have a choice in the matter. They were forced into service. They were captives, if you will. But they were the two lowest positions in society. I don't know what Jesus would have picked for examples today. You know what he might have said. We could speculate on that, but it's really not that important. What we need to understand out of this is that when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven and greatness, he's not saying it's to be like a king or a governor or a military ruler. He is saying greatness in the kingdom is to be a servant, a slave. Wow. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to serve. Don't worry about your rank or position or your reward. Follow Jesus. You know, I think that here is a great opportunity for us to be different from the world around us. Here's a great opportunity for the church to live in a way that shows the reality of Jesus Christ in our life. And you can apply it in many different areas. For example, in the area of sports, how do you handle, how do we handle winning and losing? I mean, there are a lot of athletes today who are very arrogant and boastful, you know, about when they win or how great they are. And you can see it in the way that they kind of point to themselves or call attention to themselves. And they're, they're concerned about their position, the amount of money they make, all kinds of things like that. I think one of the most outlandish statements they'd ever heard, and some of you remember it, was when one of the Minnesota Timberwolves uh, players was offered a contract that would pay him $14 million a year, and he turned it down and said, you know, i got to feed my family. You know, and you just go, these guys don't get it, do they? They're just so far out of touch with reality. And, and they think more of themselves than they should. But there are other athletes who are humble and gracious in victory and defeat. And it's not about them, it's about the team. And they point to the others on their team and they give credit to other players. Because again, there's no I in team. What about in business? Several years ago, Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great that became a bestseller. And he talked about something in that book that he called Level 5 Leadership. When he looked at some of the most successful companies in America and he looked at those who were leaders of them, he saw differences in those executives or CEOs. And he talked about that in his book. And he wrote, in his opinion, the best kind of leadership was what he called Level 5 Leadership. And he used words like humility and modesty to describe them. They were gifted, talented leaders, but they didn't talk about themselves. They didn't want to do that. They would talk about their corporation. They would talk about the contributions of others. He used the word servant leader to describe them. And then he used an illustration that I think is a really good picture of that. It's the illustration of the window and the mirror. That a level five leader, when things are going well in his organization, or you could apply this to the church too, you know, he looks out the window and he gives credit to everybody else. And he says, I want you to see what they're doing or look at that, you know, and he praises the work of others. And when things are not going well, he looks in the mirror and he says, what can I do differently? What's my part? What's my responsibility in this? 
And he talked about how an ego-driven leader in a corporation does the exact opposite. The window in the mirror still applies, but when things are going badly, he looks out the window at who he can blame and whose head needs to roll. And when things are going well, he looks in the mirror and he pats himself on the back and he says, aren't I doing a great job? Kind of like Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel who boasted about all of the gardens he had made and all of the kingdoms he ruled and all of his power and might until God humbled him. He said there's another interesting thing about a level five leader versus an ego-driven leader is when it comes to raising up future leaders, a level five leader is very concerned about that because it's not about himself, it's about the corporation. It's about the work. And so he is busy raising up future leaders. An ego-driven leader often even sets up his company for failure because he wants it to be about him. And so he's not thinking about raising up the next generation because when he leaves, he doesn't really care what happens and he thinks that will enhance his reputation. And it doesn't work that way. Even in business, we can be different in the way that we go about our work and give credit to Christ. In marriage, I ran across an illustration of a A pastor who, in his marital counseling, has often suggested this to couples that are dealing with difficulties in their marriage. He challenges them to go for two months without asking for anything for themselves. Don't ask for anything for yourself. Just during those two months, ask, what can you do for your spouse? And he goes, it's amazing to see the reaction. I mean, some couples are kind of threatened by that, like, like a... If I don't ask for something, my husband's not going to do anything around the house. Or, you know, I won't get anything done around here. Or, you know, they kind of look at it from that perspective. But what happens for those that are willing to do it is that it's a paradigm shift where you go from seeing the marriage just about you and your needs to where you look at the needs of your spouse and you serve one another and a change takes place. Now, it's not wrong to express your needs or to ask for them, but what he's doing is trying to break a pattern of maybe criticalness or disappointment or thinking it's about you and changing that around to see how you can serve one another in a marriage and establish healthy new patterns. And in the church, we just came off a great week with VBS as an example of what happens when people use their gifts to serve one another. And in this case, with VBS, about making it a great week for the children in our church and in our community. And we see the fruit of what God does when people work together and lift up Jesus Christ and give Him the credit. Being a servant is a way that we can make a difference in our world. And if we want to be a servant, then thirdly, we need to follow Jesus Christ. He is our example And that becomes so clear here in the passage that we look at. In verse 28, Jesus said that He was calling them to be this servant just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Again, He is our example. If anyone had a right to be served, it is Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's the ruler of the universe. He's the Almighty One, you know, who who is now seated at the right hand of His Father in heaven, but He was willing to lay aside His glory to come to earth 
to take upon Himself our humanity and become like us. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. I want to explain a couple words there that are important. That word ransom, in Greek it's lutron, it was the most commonly used word for the purchase price of freeing a slave. If you were to go to the slave market where people were being sold to others as property, the price you would pay would be that lutron, that ransom price. And Jesus said that's why He came. He came to give His life as a ransom for many. And the word for there in Greek is the word anti or anti. It means in place of or instead of the many. Jesus understood that His death would be a substitutionary death. That He would die in our place. He would take upon Himself our sins, pay the penalty that we deserve because of our disobedience so that the righteousness of God would be satisfied. And we could be free. And that freedom comes when we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. It is one of the clearest statements of Jesus' understanding of His mission. And again, Jesus didn't have to lay down His life for us. He chose to do that. Willingly, voluntarily, He chose to become a servant, to die in our place. And because of His obedience... Paul tells us in Philippians that God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name above every other name. You know, I want to share with you an illustration that is like that. Self-sacrifice, freely done, willingly done. In a couple weeks, we are going to celebrate our nation's independence on July 4th. It'll be 236 years that we have enjoyed the freedom we have as a country. There were 56 men who signed that Declaration of Independence. Have you ever wondered or have you ever looked at what happened to those men who signed that Declaration? They did not enjoy the freedoms that we did. They risked their lives for the sake of their children and their children's children and generations to come. And five of those signers of the Declaration were captured by the British as traitors and they were tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships of the Revolutionary War. And what kind of men were they? Twenty-four of them were lawyers and jurists. Eleven were merchants Nine were farmers and large plantation owners. They were men of means, well-educated. But they signed the Declaration of Independence knowing full well that the penalty would be death if they were captured. They signed and they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Carter Braxton of Virginia was a wealthy planter and trader. He saw his ships swept away from the seas by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts, and he died in rags. Thomas McKean was so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family almost constantly. He served in the Congress without pay, and his family was kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him, and poverty was his reward. 
Francis Lewis had his home and properties destroyed. The enemy jailed his wife, and she died within a few months. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His fields and his grist mill were laid waste, and for more than a year he lived in forests and caves, returning home to find his wife dead and his children vanished. A few weeks later, he died from exhaustion and a broken heart. Lewis Morris, Philip Livingston, and others suffered similar fates. These men were not wild-eyed, rabble-rousing ruffians. They were soft-spoken men of means and education. But standing tall and straight and unwavering, they willingly pledged their lives. For the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And we are the beneficiaries of that commitment. Just like Jesus, He is our example. And if you want to be great in God's kingdom, then we need to learn to be a servant and to put him first and to put others first in our lives. One man put it like this. He said, when you get right down to it, it all comes down to basin theology. It's a good word picture to keep in mind. A friend of his asked, well, what do you mean by that basin theology? He said, well, do you remember when Jesus was brought before Pilate And the Jews wanted him crucified, and Pilate had the opportunity to set him free. He didn't do that. He called for a basin, and he washed his hands of the whole thing as though that would somehow exempt him from responsibility. But remember Jesus on the night before his death, when he met with the disciples in the upper room? He too called for a basin, and he knelt to wash the feet of the disciples. He washed our feet, too, in that room. He did it for us, willingly and freely, and he said, I have set you an example that you should follow me. It all comes down to basin theology, and which one will we choose? Will we choose to kind of wash our hands and say, let somebody else do it, or somebody else can take that role or responsibility Or when called upon by Jesus, will we step up to the plate and say, Here I am, Lord. Use me. You know, I think it's important to ask the question, What happened to the disciples? Did they get it? Did they eventually get it after all those times of arguing and quarreling among themselves? Yeah, they did. They really did get it. And you can look at their letters in the New Testament where Peter and 1 Peter 5 would write to those who were elders in the church and he'd say, you know what, I want you to do this, man. Not lording it over others, but proving to be examples to the flock. Not doing this under compulsion, but willingly, eager to serve because of what Christ has done for you. James, the brother of Jesus, in his letter would call himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul, what would he say? What was his favorite word that he used to describe himself in his letters? He called himself a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. And he was glad to do it. What will we choose? Will we be servants of Christ? Let's pray. 
Father, when we think of all that Your Son has done for us, how can we do anything less? Jesus, You were willing to lay aside Your glory, the privileges, the position that You had in heaven to take upon Yourself our humanity, our sins, and to die in our place. And because of that, and the work that You've done in our life, we are here today. And we can worship You in freedom. We can serve You. We can use our gifts. We can share in what You're doing in our kingdom. And Lord, I thank You for so many in this church who get it and do that. And for the joy that we see and celebrate even today when we think, when we think of these young children that came to know Christ this week. Would You bless our work in this community? Would You help us all to be servants and to lift up Jesus Christ? And would you honor the commitment that is being made and use it for your honor and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.